On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, uh, we are going to talk about, brace yourself, sperm. I know, I know. Hamilton apparently is the central clearinghouse for sperm donations to go across the country. Hundreds, thousands of babies are being born because of sperm that is sent from Hamilton. I know, I know. You'll hear it. It's interesting. It's just little awkward. Uh, we're also going to be talking about our airport, which may be delivering some of this. Our airport is booming. Passenger numbers way up. Is this sustainable? Because it's always been a problem sustaining this when it's gone up in the past. And we are going to be chatting about those referees that missed the call in the football game on the weekend, which of course has, everyone knows they missed the call, but they are human beings. You can believe they blew it and have sympathy because what they are going through right now, well, you'll hear it. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may not know this. I don't know if you want to know this. I, I Well, you're going to find out right now. Uh, Hamilton is North America's, this country's anyway, leading supplier of, you ready for this? Sperm. Mm-hmm. Like the humankind. And since I really don't know where to go with this by myself, and I don't want to do a monologue on this topic, let me bring in the man who has made this the case. He has grown this industry in this city. Uh, and by that, I mean, he's not the biggest donor, the guy who runs the business who has made this the biggest industry, Haymont Bissessar, who is behind Can-Am Cryo Services here in Hamilton. Haymont, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, We are always in this city looking for things that we can boast about to the rest of the country, and I think you've just led us into the billboard we should now have on the side of the highway as you come into Hamilton. Number one sperm city in in Canada. Work for you? I think that's quite appropriate. (laughs) Well, how did... Okay, so most people listening right now are either falling off their chairs or not really knowing what we're talking about. Explain what this actually means. We are not physically, as I understand it, producing, we, we're importing and redistributing this to other people who need it, correct? That's correct. So, so the, the current Canadian regulations prohibit payment of donors for sperm. Always? So has Canada, that always been the case, Heyman? It ha- it, 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 this, uh, no, it hasn't been always the case. Uh, this was back in 2004 under the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. And under that act, it made it illegal. You can go to jail for 10 years. Really? If you pay for sperm or eggs. Now, your company, if I understand this correctly, you started prior to that rule coming into effect, that law coming into effect, correct? That is correct. So we, st- we started a company in 2000 and um, with the intention of screening and recruiting uh, Canadian sperm donors. Um, we had very little success under that program, and then it all changed in 2004, under the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, which prohibit, prohibited payment to donors. You, now, if I understand correctly, again, you're, I don't know if it still is, but at that time you were located near McMaster University. And I'm just, I'm trying to imagine when you're trying to get started and trying to find donors, how awkward a conversation or a request that might've been for, stu- for students at the university, even though it's a legitimate thing. Well, I think, I think it was a running joke with the university because every September, we would have 10 to 15 first-year students show up looking for a job. So I think it was a running joke at the university that if first-year students need a job, they should come to Canam Cryo, 
not realizing that they were going to be sperm donors. <laughs> so they would walk in the door, what, thinking they were going to be yep, working minimum wage for, for something? Yeah, they were, they were walking in the door saying, I'm here for, to apply for the job. <laughs> and then we would explain what the job is, and then they would run out the door. All of them? All of them. Really? Because I would have thought that while as many of them would have been running out the door, a bunch of others would have been saying, hey, 50, 60 bucks, whatever it is, a donation, I'm in. Yeah, once we explain the screening process and, and the quarantine process and they wouldn't get paid or any money for probably six to nine months, it was too much of a commitment for them. Okay, so when that doesn't turn out now, you set your sights on doing this slightly differently, which is now not necessarily collect, well, not collecting the samples here, not collecting the donations here, but finding what places down in the States that do collect and bringing them here to then send out. That's correct. So we import from a few sperm banks in the U.S. Uh, all, the, all the banks in the U.S. have to meet the uh, Canadian Health Canada Semen Regulations, so they're compliant with the Canadian regulations. Which means, uh, like literally nobody listening right now, Heyman, knows what that means. Uh, I mean, they know what regulations are, but what does that mean? When it's being screened, what are they screening for? Uh, they're screening for infectious disease. So to become a donor... Health Canada has a list of what we call exclusion criteria. And some of those criteria are, uh, if you're a homosexual male, you, you're excluded from being a donor. If you had sex with a man even once since 1977, you're excluded from being a donor. And other exclusion criteria are, if you have a history of alcoholism, you'll be excluded from being a donor. So there's a lot of uh, exclusion, what we call exclusion criteria, um, and barriers from uh, to become a donor. If you're over the age of 39, you're also excluded from being a donor. It is, um, okay, and now when these donations, and I'm jumping around here just because this is all new to me too, um, when you then go to these sperm banks and get the donations and bring them here and they've now been screened and you're able then, what do you do? Do you, uh, do you package them up and then sell them at no, request? How do you do it? They're already packaged and, and uh, prepared and frozen. So they're frozen and kept in liquid nitrogen at minus 196 degrees Celsius. So they're in cold storage. And we uh, review all the paperwork, the donor screening and testing to ensure they're compliant with the Health Canada Human Regulations. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Hamant Bissasar, who is the guy behind Can-Am Cryo Services. Uh, Hamilton, if you're just joining us, Hamilton is the number one spot for, the number one sperm industry spot for human donations. We s- import and then send it out to the rest of Canada and I guess around North America, Hamant as well. It's not just Canada, is it, or is it just Canada? Uh, no, we're limited to Canada, so okay. we only distribute it in Canada. So how does this work then? Uh, if somebody wants to get a donation, is there a, do they go on a website? Do they call you? How do they, because they're going to have specifications, I guess, for lack of a better term that they want as well. So walk me through how this would work if someone wants a child and you have what they're looking for. Right. So, so the, the first step would be to visit our website at canamcryo.com. Uh, and then there is a, um, on our website, they can search for a donor with specific characteristics. So there's a, um, if they're looking for Caucasian or a donor who is 5 feet 10 inches and taller, so they can put those um, criteria in, and the database will generate donors from all of our suppliers. And then there's additional information that the patients can look at, such as childhood photographs or adult photographs on the hmm. donor, 
They can look at the donor profiles, the medical profiles, to look at the medical testing and screening. And they can also look at personal profiles in the donor. And the personal profiles will contain information such as the donor's favorite color, favorite food, favorite music, that sort of information. Really? So, so, and to the best of your knowledge, because I know you don't follow every donation and watch them grow up, um, to the best of your knowledge, does it often happen, occasionally happen, sometimes happen that the baby fits the same or grows into the same characteristics? I mean, how, how likely is it that if you choose a, a donor who's over six feet tall and white with blonde hair, that you're going to get a child who will eventually be that? Well, I mean, with genetics, because the genetics is a mixture of the mother and, and, the, and the donor right. genetics. So it's it's very difficult to predict, but there's good expectation that if the donor is you know tall, that the, there's a good probability that the child is going to be tall. Do you pay different amounts depending on different characteristics? No. So in the U.S. they do. Uh, really? In Canada? Yes. Wow. So, so uh, historically in the U.S., if a donor had a graduate degree, if a donor was a physician or a lawyer or an accountant, those samples would cost patients more money. In Canada, we don't work that way. I mean, we felt that um, it should be equal. So whether the donor is a physician or the donor is a undergrad individual, that the price of the sperm should be the same. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm not laughing, but it would be like if I need a discount baby, go for someone who didn't have as good a career. I mean, that sounds silly. I mean, it really does. So what... um, does it ever happen, as far as you know, that somebody ends up with a child that was the opposite, or very, not the opposite, but very different from what they had thought they were getting? It, it could, if you and, and specifically, I guess this would be a racial thing, right? That if you asked for a Caucasian, it, it, there's no mix-ups. This, you would get what you have asked for. Uh, more than likely, if, uh, the chance of a mix-up is very slim. The the, the the cryovials or the tubes that the sperm comes in are labeled with the donor number, and there's other identifiers mm. that identify the sample. So there's a linkage with, with the paperwork, the documentation, infectious disease testing, and the sample. It, it, so the, it, chances, the chances of a mix-up, um, while slim, still does happen. I mean, it almost, it almost sounds like we're talking about secretariat or something here, that we're trying to, like, build the perfect child like we build the perfect racehorse. I mean, it, it, it's, it's callous and cold, I guess, but it's the business. And if people are doing this, they're looking for very specific things. They are. And, and we've seen a change, as I mentioned, over the past maybe 20 or 30 years. And what we find now is that the women that are looking for donors, commercial sperm donors, want a donor who is tall, who is well-educated, who is physically fit, who is healthy. Um, so uh, based on the demand, some of our suppliers only accept donors who have post-secondary education, who are over 5 feet 10 inches tall, um, or over 6 feet tall. So, so the criteria that the suppliers are using has really narrowed because that's what the demand is for. So let's say that I hit all the hot button things. I am tall, I'm fit, I'm educated, I have a good career, on and on and on. I've got, I've got all the check boxes that are very popular that people want to have. How many kids could I end up producing? Is there a limit to how many samples could go out from my donation or could I end up having 500 children? Uh, the, the chance of having 500 children is pretty slim. The, there are no regulations in Canada to limit the number of offspring or babies from a donor. 
And, and part of the reason for that is that it's very difficult to do because as a commercial venture, we would have to ship, let's say the number is 10 babies per donor, we would have to ship 10 samples uh, to 10 different women, <clears throat> make sure they're used, and then wait for a report back to see if they're pregnant or not. Mm. So, so it practically doesn't make sense. Um, in the U.S., the American Society of Reproductive Medicine recommends that 25 births in a population of 800,000 people. Um, but we don't have that in Canada. So one of the ways the industry is, is looking at that, because there has been an issue in the past, Canada don't want to have three or 400 babies out there. And, and what the, the suppliers are doing is they're limiting the number of samples they freeze or bank on a donor. Um, and that, in turn, would limit the availability and the number of pregnancies for that donor. It is, uh, it is, I got so many more things I want to ask. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but it's a fascinating topic. It, it does make me wonder about some guy who's a donor somewhere who just has dozens and dozens of kids everywhere and doesn't know who they even are. I mean, it, it opens up, and we don't have time, as I say, unfortunately, but ethical and moral and physical and all kinds of discussions about this. It really is fascinating. It, it really is. And just to leave you with one message, the acceptance rate of a donor is probably less than one man in 200. So it's very, very difficult to become a donor because of all the screening and testing that these donors undergo. Heyman Bissessar, who is behind Can-Am Cryo Services in Hamilton. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton Airport, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've been up there one time or another. Most of you, I hope many of you have flown out of it because it's actually a great place to fly out of. But it is busier now than it's ever been with passenger traffic anyway. Uh, 2016, so two years ago, I mean, I know we're in 2019, so I know my math, but anyway, for all intents and purposes, two years ago, 2016, 333,000 people used or flew out or flew into Hamilton Airport. Last year, that number had jumped to 726,000. That's a 118% increase over two years. If that sounds great, that's because it is great. Here is the asterisk beside that, however, because it's all good news, it would seem. But there is a little asterisk. There's a little, hmm, that I think we have to put beside it. If you've lived in this city for any length of time, you'll know that we have had moments like this of optimism and excitement and growth and buildup at the airport. And yet every time, seemingly, something happens, some airline closes, something goes bad, and it fades. Well, let me bring in... Someone we haven't had on this show in a long time, way too long. I don't even know if he's been on in the new year, but he's here now. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Sir, thanks for doing this today. Happy to be here, Scott. It always feels like I'm there, whether I am or not. Well, you know, yeah, uh, well, that's good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you feel so warm about the program. I um, These numbers, we're told, and I think it makes lots of sense, are largely, these new big numbers, are largely built on the back of Flair and Swoop, which are two low-cost airlines, and they set up shop here. Uh, which I suspect means, and I hate to even raise this, but if these airlines coming in can pump up the numbers like this, if they were to leave, the numbers would probably, I'm guessing, vanish. And most low-cost airlines that have come into Hamilton, or many of them, have eventually disappeared. Will this time be any different? Uh, Well, that is the million-dollar question. So 
Uh, let me let me just come back at a slightly different angle than what you're doing on this. Uh, any airport uh, exists because of the traffic that comes in and out of it. And Hamilton Airport, because it doesn't have a curfew, it can operate 24 hours a day, has always been very attractive to business traffic, the courier companies, what have you. Now, they don't bring passengers to the airport, and therefore they don't seem to excite people the same way that passenger traffic does. But that airport has been a steady eddy when it comes to Purolator and FedEx and UPS bringing flights in and out. Also, charter airlines. So a lot of people don't realize this, but the Blue Jays yes. or the Raptors, because they don't know when a game is going to end, then they, they're not sure if they can get to Toronto Airport because Toronto Airport shuts down. They will fly in and out of Hamilton Airport and use it. And so you know, we do have a nice, steady book of business. But the thing that gets us all excited is when passenger traffic goes up. But that isn't anything that we did in Hamilton. It isn't anything we did. We had the welcome mat out all along. It's because some nice airline has said, I think I'm going to use that as my eastern hub. Now, if we go back maybe 10, 15 years, it was WestJet that got us all excited. WestJet started up, came out of nowhere, said, we're going to use Hamilton Airport. And for a while, our numbers were doing really well. Maybe not quite, uh, I forget what the exact number is at the moment, 700 and some odd thousand, but maybe 500,000 people a year out of Hamilton Airport. And then WestJet said, not that it failed, but yeah, we're going to transfer some of that back to Toronto. Toronto's an expensive place to be, but now that we've established ourselves as an airline, we're going to shift things around a little bit, and there was nothing we can do about it. You're absolutely right. This uptick in numbers is thanks to Flare Airlines. It's thanks to Swoop. Um, will it last? Well, will those airlines last? If they do, then it will continue. And there's the one bit of good news, Scott. When you're starting to talk about three-quarters of a million people using an airport, that's a lot of traffic for a relatively new airline. Swoop of the two of them has the deeper pockets. Flair, bit started on a shoestring, didn't necessarily have a whole lot of money behind it, but a Swoop, the WestJet low-cost carrier, has money behind it, and they've made a commitment to keep going. So I would say for the moment, not being pessimistic here, at least for a couple of years, things look really bright for Hamilton Airport. Is there, besides the deep pockets and the commitment, is there anything different in the low-cost airline industry that would make it more likely that an airline would or could survive today? So I'm going to say no in the sense that this is a bit of an experiment. Canada's never had an ultra-low-cost airline. Suddenly we have two, and, and get this, those numbers you're talking about may go up because there's a third in the wings called Canada Jetlines that wants to start later this year and also use Hamilton Airport. So we've had this little uptick in this very low-cost travel. The thing that I was worried about and have continued to be worried about is will consumers see the value? Now, uh, I know they seem like really low-cost flights, but when you pay your fare, all you get is a seat and a seat belt. If you carry on a bag, you get, you get charged for that. If you check a bag, you get charged for it. If you want a drink, you get charged for it. I even joke, it hasn't quite got there here, but I joke that if you have to use the bathroom, you might have to have a credit card to swipe <laughs> to go use that far. And that's a different model of travel than we had before. It works very well in Europe. It's actually worked very well in parts of the United States, but it was new for Canada, and I was kind of holding my breath. But it does seem, I hear more and more people saying, boy, I really like flying swoop to Puerto Vallarta, from Hamilton Airport, and it was so inexpensive and it was so easy. 
you know, this is why I think we've got some real good reasons for optimism. Well, and you mentioned, what was the new uh, airline? That Canada was Jetlines. Canada Jetlines. I understand also Norwegian Air is going to be starting flying to Dublin, uh, which, which, I mean, even though that seems like an odd one, just out of the blue, that we're just flying to one spot with one airline to Dublin, but okay, that's fine. And also Air Transat and Sunwing, apparently their winter flights roster is going up. So it seems anyway, Marvin, it seems as though maybe we've reached a point of some momentum here. Absolutely. But again, keep in mind, we didn't cause it exactly. We put the welcome mat out. We've got a well-functioning airport. Probably the best thing anybody ever did in Hamilton was to build that Highway 6 extension off the 403. There used to be wonderful stories in the 90s and the what have you, of Blue Jay baseball players getting lost in farmers' fields trying to find the airport. <laughs> Robbie Alomar pulling into someone's driveway and saying, help, can you get me to the airport? Now that we have that lovely sort of, if you will, expressway to the airport, it makes it much more accessible. So we've done all we can. What we need now are for those, A, those airlines to have the deep pockets, and B, for consumers to discover those airlines and use that airport. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business about Hamilton's airport. Huge numbers released yesterday, today, showing that we have a 118% increase in passenger traffic coming in and going out of Hamilton Airport in the last two years, which sounds great. And Marvin, I think this is maybe indicative of something else. Well, I think talking to most people who have ever used Hamilton Airport, and I assume you have, um, I think most people around here that I've ever spoken to said, look, if it was convenient, if it was affordable, if I could find a flight to go where I wanted, I'd fly out of Hamilton Airport every time. Yeah, absolutely. And why is that? Well, first, the drive-in, it's not like I'm driving through Toronto where I can kind of flip a coin. Is it going to be bumper-to-bumper jammed? Is there going to be a traffic accident? I can guarantee I can get to the airport quickly. I can park relatively inexpensively and very close to the door. The getting in and getting out of the airport, getting through the inspections are all very, very quick. So I'm in and out so quickly. And and certainly this isn't a news to people in Hamilton, but it is a bit of news to people in Oakville and Mississauga. And I, I know if we can just get them to try it, they often go, wow, this is so much more convenient. I didn't realize uh, and But the only problem there is to keep it going, you've got to continue to give them those choices right. of flights and other options. And that's not up to us. We don't charter the planes. We don't fly them in and out. It, it really is the private sector who's got to then take that welcome mat and run with it. We do have Toronto Airport, as you mentioned, on one side. We have Buffalo Airport uh, almost equidistant away on the other side. Is it enough just to provide the flights as whatever they are that are there to allow the airlines to come in? Or do we, to keep this going, do we have to be to find a niche? Do we have to find something that is different from them? I'm going to say no. Uh, I think certainly why those two ultra-low-cost carriers, and possibly three, depending upon what happens with Canada Jetlines, chose Hamilton Airport was that they were observing there were people in Hamilton, in St. Catharines, in Beamsville, what have you, who were choosing to drive to either Niagara Falls, New York, or Buffalo, New York, for a lower-priced fare. I was never a big fan of that because same kind of problem as driving to the Hamilton Airport. How long would it take me to get through customs going over? Oh, my gosh, there's a slowdown, especially now, by the way, that the American yes. government is shut down. How fast am I going to get through? And, and there was just always that little concern for me. And for me, also, time becomes a very important question. So I like to fly out at a certain time. I want to arrive back. 
could I get those options? Toronto always seems to have so many flights I could find an option that worked. Hamilton had so few options, as much as I wanted to, I couldn't. But we're finding now that these airlines are giving us more options, and that the hope is that they'll even give you more in the future. For instance, a Swoop, uh, who flies to Mexico, I think they only fly three days a week or four days a week to Mexico. You can't go just whatever. You've got to kind of work it around the schedule. I love to hear that they're going to be expanding their offerings. Do you know who uh, sets the taxes for airlines? So in Hamilton, is it a city that's setting any taxes, or is it all province and federally? Uh, well, uh, there's a little bit of, of the province and federally, thanks to things like gasoline taxes and what have you. But the landing fees, the cost for an airplane to land, what have you, is actually controlled by the private airport authority. So there is something called the Toronto Airport Authority. And here in Hamilton, at one time, it was set by the regional government. But we sold, or uh, yes, I think that's the best way, or gave, gave uh, the rights to operate the airport to another organization. There was a name in the distant past called Tradeport. It's not called that now. Tradeport was sold to somebody else. So it's being operated by a third party for us. And again, we like that because we didn't have the cost. They weren't municipal employees. They, you know, the overhead didn't drag on us. Somebody else took that risk. And what we get is a dividend, part of the profit from the operation of that uh, facility. So the city of Hamilton does benefit from this. There's only two concerns I have. The first is if you live near the airport, our conversation, as much as we make it sound like good news, could be bad news mm. to you because of the increased noise. So I've been wanting to hear. I haven't heard anything yet, but I've been wondering when somebody might begin to say, oh, you know, I'm hearing a lot of noise from that airport. And then the other kind of thing is, as much as the passenger traffic's great news, Remember where the real money is to be made is from business traffic. They're what they call the airport growth development lands around the airport were set aside by the city to help get more businesses to locate there, businesses who might need the airport to either bring things in or send things out, uh, export, import, what they do. And you know that still is growing. It's very slow. So I would hope that we would continue to get business growth along with the passenger growth. And the reason I asked about the taxes is I wonder if we run the risk of getting too aggressive at times and making it more and more expensive and then cutting the momentum that we have. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons people will go to Buffalo, even though it's a bit of a pain sometimes, is because they feel they're getting a much better deal. If we are competitive with Buffalo rather than sometimes feeling Toronto is very expensive maybe people still come here if we suddenly start raising our prices because right. we figure now, well, we can get a little more tax dollars. Do we end up just shooting ourselves in the foot? Well, we would, but uh, but there is no sign that we're doing that. And in fact, with the increased volume, you don't have to change your landing rates to generate more revenue. As you say, if passenger traffic is doubled, let's just assume that means twice as many planes. That means twice as many much revenue coming in. I don't have to increase my base fare because I'm getting the volume. So at the moment, I don't think there's any momentum to do that. It's actually Toronto and Vancouver because of the size of their infrastructure, they keep talking about increasing their landing fees. The more they do that, the more they make Hamilton look great. Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Back to Sunday, because most people who have either watched the football game on Sunday between uh, Los Angeles Rams and New Orleans Saints, or who've seen the replays or who have heard the discussion, know that the overwhelming storyline that came out of that game, because the winner went to the Super Bowl, it's a big game, huge game. The overwhelming storyline that came out of that game was a call that wasn't made 
with about a minute and a half or almost two minutes left in the game, but that almost certainly would have ended the game. And a player for New Orleans was pretty clearly, by every person's assessment, just about every person's assessment, was pretty clearly interfered with, should have led to a flag being thrown, which would have led to a penalty, which would have allowed the New Orleans Saints to be down to about the three-yard line. They could have run off most of the rest of the clock, kicked a game-winning field goal over, going to the Super Bowl. Instead, call not made, and the referees, the officials, they weren't referees, the officials become the center of the spotlight. And I mean, it is a scorching hot spotlight. These guys are under the gun at this point. It got to the point apparently where the officials all had to be moved to a different hotel in New Orleans for their safety. I mean, we're talking, this is no joke. When you're talking about a team, a call that potentially has cost the team a shot at the Super Bowl in that city, in front of those fans... And then you see it on the board and everybody knows what happened. People are not happy. Well, let me bring in someone who knows a little bit about officiating. I think he's in about 72 halls of fame. He's won more awards than I have hair. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Hairs on my head, I was going to say, but that's a really bad example. Uh, His name is Ron Foxcroft. He has refereed in the NCAA. He has refereed in the the Olympics. He's refereed everywhere. Uh, Sir, thanks for doing this today. You're very welcome, Scott. And I want to uh, congratulate you on your intro uh, your intro uh, said uh, clearly um, they need human beings to referee games, not computers. And and uh, if they wanted uh, computers to referee games, then we should all just play video games with computers and all have a great time. But uh, for as long as we've been following sport, and probably long after we're gone, we're still going to have human beings refereeing games. And, and also, we might add, human beings with normal lives. Uh, these these fellows on that game, um, by the way, have a Hamilton connection. Really? Yeah. And and but I'll go I'll go back to that. Uh, you you covered something that's very important. Uh, after the game, the security on those officials, and I'm very close to it, Scott. Being on the board of NASO, there are members, uh, there are friends. In fact, the the head referee on the upcoming Super Bowl is John Perry, uh, who is a superb referee and, of course, a big promoter of uh, of a, a whistle. That uh, <laughs> you know, there there will be a Hamilton connection. There'll be seven Hamilton connections in the Super Bowl in Atlanta, plus me. But there'll be seven Fox Forty referees on the field. But uh, no, the Hamilton connection. The the fellow that. Uh, committed the non-call incorrect, uh, the technical term, non-call incorrect, okay. is Gary Cavalletto, and uh, the head referee, the white hat, was Bill Vinovich, and the Hamilton Connection, they both worked the 1996 Grey Cup in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Really? Yes. Yes. Well, there you go. Did not know that. Did yep, not know both, that. Both terrific guys, uh, you know, uh, certified accountants and so on. And and Scott, they do, they are human beings. They do have lives. They do make mistakes, but they have to go back home to their neighborhood, to their home, to their family, to their kids, to their wife, and to their fellow workers at their jobs. And um, can you imagine... Uh, after that, right after the game, the security was greater than you could have broken into Fort Knox 
easier than get to those referees after that game in New Orleans. They were scheduled to go back with security to the downtown Marriott at uh, in New Orleans, and the security for the NFL and for New Orleans said, you are not going anywhere back to that Marriott. In fact, we will get your suitcase, we'll get your underwear, we'll get your socks, and we're going to places unknown. Well, let's let's go to a situation, what this situation would be like. Now, I know that when I have you on here and you refereed, I don't know, thousands of games, yep. and in all those games, there was never a blown call. But you've been around people who did blow calls before, right? Yeah. <laughs> Scott, we could consume, you know, you have a two-hour show, and, and with millions of listeners, we could consume <laughs> two hours. Uh, there's one call that I still have bad dreams about. All right, tell me about it. It was 25 years ago in triple overtime in Kentucky. I missed a last-second shot on the buzzer on goaltending. A last-second shot, I missed That would have won the game? Yeah, uh, Kentucky would have won the game. In Kentucky? In Kentucky. Ouch. And and, uh, Scott, my security uh, back to the airport was, was greater than the security around Fort Knox. But my pain in in my tummy stayed with me for a month. I didn't eat for a week, and I didn't sleep for a month, and I have still, 25 years later, dreams about that. Because, Scott, they are, uh, are, are reinforce what I'm saying. Referees are human beings, and we have feelings. And the last thing you want to do is make a call late in the game that decides the game. And And this was... A big call. Oh, I, oh sure I mean, it was. Absolutely there, it was. There, there were two things in this game where I would hope the NFL would look north to the CFL and talk about. Number one is video review of pass interference. And number two, a coin flip in overtime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Remember, Scott, in our day, a coin flip was to decide who got the choice to uh, take the wind in the fourth quarter when you're playing in Winnipeg. (laughs) And, you know, whenever you went to Winnipeg, you tried to win the coin flick, defer, and take the wind in the fourth quarter. That's what it was intended to do. But this coin flip had a decided impact. Absolutely it did. Absolutely it did. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. So anyway, back to the... Yeah, let me just go back to to your situation because it's a great example of, because it was a big game, it was a big moment, and it's similar to this in that it was in a hostile place, in the home team's place, and your call went against the home team, of course. Did you know almost immediately after you missed that call that you had missed that call? Almost immediately, Scott, because I lost my concentration. The one thing about officiating, you need to have 100% concentration. That's why I loved officiating, because I could forget everything in my whole world. You know, work, everything, uh, traffic, uh, indigestion, because <laughs> you're, you're out there for two hours and you're 100% focused and concentrating. The one thing about officiating, you have to have a 100% focus and concentration. And, and, and I lost that. I was in the slot position. I lost the concentration for about two seconds, which decided the game. 
And so in when that happens then, and then you realize that you've missed it, and again, people can imagine these officials in the game on the weekend. When you've missed it and you realize now you've probably blown the call, yep. you've got to be concentrating, but are you spending the next number of minutes trying to convince yourself that you're okay, that you can get your confidence back, or is it a complete panic at that point? Absolutely not. You, you are uh, sick. Um, one thing I want to clear to your listeners we in the industry, referees, we want video review. And the reason is, like, people have this, this perception that us referees uh, always think we're right. Now, even though we're correct 94 97% of the time, uh, we don't always think we're correct. We want verification. That's why video review is important to us because when you walk out of that game well first of all when you go into the locker room you want to feel that you have made a hundred percent of the calls correct there's no such a game that's ever been played where the, all the referees human beings got a hundred percent of the calls correct some games have been close i i did a game in arizona and I, I think I hit 99%, which was probably the best game. But I did the Olympic gold medal game, and I was only 92%. So I had 8% wrong. So you go in, and the first thing you do today in this new technology world is you go to the screen. You mean on the court. I, I'm wondering what happens. So when when these officials, or when you, after this Kentucky game, yep. when, you, when that either the halftime comes if it's in the first half or after the game and you go hustling back to the referee's room, Yep. is the first thing you do try to find a TV to see it or are you almost scared to look at it? Oh, you have a computer now in the room. You can get it, Scott. Uh, you walk into that locker room and the first thing you do is go to your computerized, I don't know what it's called. With your fingers crossed behind your back that you didn't blow it. Absolutely. Absolutely, and you look at it on every angle, slow-mo, fast-mo, uh, you know, fast-forward, and, and you know the play, and, and I'll tell you, you know the time on the clock. You know in this case, if there was 1.47 to go, then you're going to fast-forward that computer in, in a few seconds to watch that play, and you're going to watch it in every angle. And you, We have that technology now. Desperately hoping that it's not what you thought it was. Yeah, and when you see that you've made that NCI, mm-hmm. non-call incorrect, there's also what, what, what do you What happens? When you see that and it clicks with you that really I really did miss the call or blow the call or make the wrong call, what, what does happen? You want to vomit. You you just gasp and there's no feeling like it scott I what do the other guys say what do the other do the other officials say anything or do they just know you're suffering so leave him alone uh they leave you alone for a very short period of time and they let some time go and it's kind of like a funeral you know what do you say you know when you go to visitation at at a funeral that's what it's like that's what it's like that's what it's like now in in this case of course Security came around the locker room, and it's my understanding, and I have not got confirmation, but I will because I'll be talking to them. Uh, we have a meeting in February in New York with with all the the major leagues where we get into a room and we talk about 
things in our industry that we can't talk about in public. And, you know, it, it, it's like we all get together, and it's like you and your wife having a private conversation in your kitchen. This is with NASO, right? This is with NASO. Which is, for those who don't know, the National Association of Sports Officials? Yes, we're okay. based in, in Racine, Wisconsin, and we have 30,000 members. All the major leagues are, are members, and, and we meet often. So we'll, we'll go and we'll meet. But you ask me the direct question, what happens? Well, there's silence. Everybody looks at the film because you live as a crew and you die as a crew. So believe me, uh, all the other six fellows, including the crew chief, Bill Vinovich, uh, they live with you and they die with you and they're feeling your pain. Now, the is death, there anything they can say that would make you feel better at that point? Nope. Nope. That's why, you know what, Scott? Sometimes it really sucks to be a referee. And how long would that, like you, you say 25 years later, you still occasionally think about that? Once a month. Really? I think about my stupidity in losing my concentration on a last second shot in triple overtime when there was also on the same play, there was goaltending. I'm not defending my, my incorrectness or my stupidity. Has anyone involved in that game or a fan or anyone else ever raised it with you again? Oh, yeah. Oh, they have. So yeah, th- my, so you're not the only one who's remembering it. My crew have called me 25 years later often and say, you know, Fox, let it go. My my supervisor called me often. The first thing he did when I got in the uh, secure car going back to the airport was call my supervisor and confess. Well, obviously, the game was on national ESPN, so the world knew. <laughs> and he said, Ron... All I can say tonight is go back and try and sleep because there has to be some pain to have some gain. And you know what that meant, Scott. Did you ever do a game in Kentucky again? Oh, yeah. And did they remember you? Oh, yeah. So when, so the officials who did this game, especially that, cause there were two officials in this particular case who were both about seven yards away from the ball. They, they both were, missed it. one was Gary. I'm not too sure of the other guy. And of course the, the crew chief was 30 yards away. Right. He was, Benavich. yeah. But the two guys who were really close every time, if they ever get assigned to a game in new Orleans again, everybody at that game will know those are the two idiots. That's what they'll say. The two idiots who missed that call. No question. No so that you're, they're never going to be able to shake that, especially in New Orleans. No, and you talked about that with Donnie Robertson. You you know being being labeled, being labeled, uh, Bill Buckner. You know, terrific baseball player. What's he labeled for? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. So they'll be labeled. Um, we we have the same thing in basketball. John Higgins. Uh, has got death threats ever since the North Carolina-Kentucky game two years ago, and uh, he got death threats. Uh, I mean, he lives in the Midwest, but he's now, uh, uh, you know, a wanted man in in Kentucky. You know, now these people... I, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, they'll they'll be wanted. But I use the term here. Uh, you know, there has to be some pain to have some gain. The learning experience. I really hope the NFL look mm. north to the CFL. Yeah. and that's a, that's a discussion that we're certainly going to have. Would would you say? And, and I don't want to get into that too much later on. Although no. I do agree with you. I think that that's a, that's those are things that are certainly going to be talked about. Yeah. Would the NFL? be wise to never assign these guys to New Orleans again, or do you almost have to to not look like you're hiding? 
you have to assign them. They have to go back. They have to go back. Uh, they'll never be forgiven. However, people have to see that these are these are terrific, highly rated, earned referees that earned that assignment, Scott. These are not dummies. They are, these are not trained monkeys. These are highly qualified, and they made a mistake. And, and I go back to your intro. They're not computers. Yep. You know, we are human beings. We are human beings. I would hope, I don't know what they're going to do, well, I will know. I'll find out very shortly. But uh, I, I would hope they get an assignment uh, next um, next season. Mm. And and I've I've seen them. In fact, my son Dave worked with Gary at Lambeau Field last yeah, that's year. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And and he was a great mentor. And he's a, you know uh, this is tough. Now the one good thing I think I I applaud my friend Mike Pereira because he came on the TV and said, "Look." Uh, that was a missed call. Mike Pereira, of course, is the former ref who's now an analyst on Fox Fox's exactly. game coverage. A former supervisor. Right. You yes. you mentioned Dave. Now, you have a son, Dave Foxcroft, number 30. Number 30. Number 30, who is a CFL referee. You yes. have other sons. Steve does basketball games at, at certain levels. Yep. You have been through this. You know what it's like, and most people who are parents go, look, if something bad is going to happen, I'd rather have it happen to me. I'd rather have that be on me than on my kids. When you're watching them officiate, especially Dave, because it's on the highest level in Canada, right? do you grimace almost sometimes just at the thought of what would happen, like the pain that you would experience if something like that ever happened to him? I wish it was on me. I wish it was on me. It's harder for Is it me. hard to watch that, knowing that could happen? Oh, yes, it's hard, because I evaluate his every game. I'm his mentor and his teacher, and I have to tell him, we talk after every single game, and I have to tell him when he's missed a call or when he's done something mechanically wrong. It's really hard as a father, uh, as a sibling, as a wife. Like Like I say... These gentlemen have to go home to their families. But it's something for Dave. Like, and again, Dave is a great referee. So, yep. I mean, we're not talking about mistakes he's made. But you, you can, you can probably, if you're a referee, if you're an official, you can get away with blowing one in the first quarter of game number three of the regular season. Right. I would think, as a parent or as someone as a spouse, the idea of having that particular play, where the whole season is riding on that one play, is yep. what you live in fear of. You have to jack up your game in the final two minutes. Mm. You know what? Which means increasing your concentration and focus level to the highest degree because you don't want to be on the front page of Scott Radley's column. Mm. Well, uh, you know, being accused of costing. Now, in this case, it's millions, millions of gambling dollars. That too. That I too. Hate to say that. What would you say? We got to go. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But what it, let let us say, and I know it's not going to happen. But just because you do have a son who's now in this in this game, yep. If that kind of thing, if that kind of moment, if Dave is doing the Grey Cup game, it's Saskatchewan and whomever, and it's Saskatchewan and 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 Hamilton, and there is a call in uh, right at the end that changes potentially the outcome of the game, and everybody now knows that the ref or the official made that. What do you say to him after the game? Oh, I counsel him. First of all, uh, I wait for his explanation. And and then whatever it is, you know, if it's a, a, a missed call, 
you have to be there. You 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 need to be there uh, to console. I say, you know, I I hate to. Uh, Compare it, Scott, but it is like a funeral. When you've blown a big call... Now, you made reference to Saskatchewan-Hamilton Grey Cup. Dave worked that game. The first call of the game, Corey Chamblin came up to him and said, Dave, that was a call from Burlington, Ontario. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, it's it's a very humanizing, sympathetic thing because the pain... Uh, like I'm feeling the pain because I'm from the industry, but believe me, uh, it's like a toothache, Scott. If you tell me you got a toothache, I'm feeling for you, but you're feeling a lot worse. Last thing, I, I said last thing, but those guys who were involved in that game in New Orleans who didn't make that call, are they? is it easy to get your confidence back or are they going to be completely doubting themselves for the first while next year? It's tough. It's Yeah, that's a very good point. Um you, you you need confidence. You know why you need confidence, Scott? Because you need 200 correct calls to make up for the one that you're going to blow. And there's 80,000 people just eager to boo you. And 53 million on TV. You need confidence. And that's why I say to referees, work as many games as you can. Get a 1,000 good calls under your belt so that you can emotionally handle the one that you blew because it's very hard. You know, referees are not in it for the money, although in the NFL they make a lot of money. Referees are, I would say predominantly, 95% of referees in all sport in the world are in it for the love of the game. See, I thought they were in it to pick up girls. Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) They're in it for the love of the game and and not for anything else. And, And, you know, when... When they have done something that they feel disrespects the game, because really and truly, what are you in it for? You're in it for the show respect for the game and the participants. And they feel, uh, I know they feel, they've let down the participants. It is uh, it is a tough racket. They are certainly, uh, uh, like, uh, as I say, as much as I believe, and you don't have to say it, but I will, as much as I believe they did blow that call, I there is a part of me that also feels afterwards very, very sorry for them because you just know what's waiting down the road for them for a long time. And listen, I appreciate you coming on, Ron, and talking about this. I, Thanks it, for is, saying that. You know, I, I'll say one thing. It is life-changing for yeah, these gentlemen. That, you know, and that that is, that is stunning. And yep. we got to go. That is stunning to think that one moment in your life for these guys, like Bill Buckner, will now define. The, it doesn't matter what they do from here on; they will yep. be the guys that missed that call. You bet. And these are the guys that worked that up in Hamilton, Ontario. Appreciate it, Ron. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.